This episode is somewhat fittingly brought to you by Casper, where you can get an obsessively injured mattress at a shockingly fair price. Get $50 off your order when you go to casper.com slash best and use the offer code best at checkout. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Last Week Tonight, La Show, Democracy Now!, The Tom Hartman Program, Redacted Tonight with Lee Camp, CBS Sunday Morning, and The Young Turks. And now, last week tonight asks, how is this still a thing? This week, Columbus Day. How is this still a thing? America has a lot of solemn holiday traditions. From saluting the quiet dignity of the Irish, to proudly celebrating our birth as a nation, to just spending quality time with family at Thanksgiving. But next week brings perhaps the strangest of American holidays. Columbus Day which brings with it the beloved annual traditions of cheesy local commercials. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue to celebrate Mattress Depot. And Americans turning up to an unexpectedly closed post office and going, oh yeah, it's Columbus Day. Shit. This proud holiday commemorates the landing of Christopher Columbus in the Bahamas in 1492, beginning a long tradition of obnoxious white people visiting Caribbean islands and acting like they own the place. In school, American children learn about Christopher Columbus's life. I will discover a shortcut to India. We'll call this part of India San Salvador. Of course, what they tend not to learn are the parts of Columbus's life where he kidnapped Native Americans and sold them into slavery, had his men slice them to pieces, and through disease and warfare killed roughly half the population of Haiti. But in fairness, none of that rhymes with in 1492. Nevertheless, Columbus became famous for his discoveries, specifically the discovery that you can discover a continent with millions of people already living on it that had also been visited by Vikings around 500 years earlier. In fact, many U.S. states and cities no longer recognize Columbus Day, raising the question, why do the rest of us still do it? Sure, it's a chance for Italians to celebrate their heritage, but there are so many other heroes they could celebrate. Why not Frank Sinatra Day? He killed no Native Americans that we know of. Or Mario Batali. If he's killed anyone, it's through cheese. Or Al Pacino Day, a day that will probably start well and end as an overblown parody of itself. She got so America's least favorite holiday commemorates a murderous egomaniac whose most famous discovery was a case of getting lost and refusing to ask directions. All of which is enough to make you wonder, Columbus Day, how is this still a thing? You know, there's this idea that Canada is so nice. That idea will have to be 
reconsidered in the light of this story from the Guardian Sue Caribou it's a um, woman a um, aboriginal Canadian yes they have those she gets pneumonia about once a year like clockwork as a matter of fact the recurring illness stems from her childhood years at one of Canada's residential schools quote I was thrown into a cold shower every night sometimes after being raped she said she was snatched from her parents' house in 1972 by the state-funded, church-run Indian residential school system that brutally attempted to assimilate native children for over a century in Canada. This is Canada, eh? Not even any Tim Hortons for her. She was only seven years old. We had to stand like soldiers while singing the national anthem, otherwise we would be beaten up, she recalled. She said Catholic mission... Catholic missionaries, really? Physically and sexually abused her until 1979... In the province of Manitoba, she said she was called a dog, was forced to eat rotten vegetables, and was forbidden to speak her native language, Cree. Her voice and that of 150,000 other residential school pupils was finally heard across Canada this week as the country faced one of the darkest chapters in its history. The head of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission set up to examine the school system's legacy. didn't mince his words when he unveiled... His report, quote, Canada clearly participated in a period of cultural genocide, according to Justice Murray Sinclair. Although Prime Minister Harper apologized for the school system in 2008, the Catholic Church did in 2009, his government has always denied that it was a form of genocide. As many as 6,000 children died in residential institutions during the period from 1876 to 1996. The accurate figure could be much higher, however, since the government stopped recording Aboriginal students' deaths in 1920 in light of the alarming statistics. Caribou believes dozens of pupils perished at the institution where she was detained. Remains, she says, were found all over the fields. Many of my friends committed suicide after their release. Justice Sinclair, the second Aboriginal judge to be appointed in Canada, made clear the connection between the residential schools and the social ills plaguing what, it, what they call it, they're the First Nations today. Said Caribou, I didn't learn anything at the school except the Our Father Prayer and the National Anthem. Prime Minister Harper didn't utter a word while he attended the closing ceremony of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, nor did he announce any measures that would further reconciliation for survivors. If Stephen Harper's apology for residential schools is not followed by actions, it will prove to be meaningless, says the chief of the Assembly of First Nations. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada has concluded the, that country's decades-long policy of forcibly removing indigenous children from their families and placing them in state-funded residential Christian schools amounted to, quote, cultural genocide. 
After a six-year investigation, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report concluded, quote, the Canadian government pursued this policy of cultural genocide because it wished to divest itself of its legal and financial obligations to Aboriginal uh, people and gain control over their lands and resources. If every Aboriginal person had been absorbed into the body politic, there would be no reserves, no treaties, and no Aboriginal rights. The first schools opened in 1883. The last one closed in 1998. During that time, over 150,000 indigenous children were sent away to rid them of their native cultures and languages and integrate them into mainstream Canadian society. Many students recall being beaten for speaking their native languages and losing touch with their parents and customs. The report also documents widespread physical, cultural and sexual abuse at the schools. It was based in part on testimony from 7,000 survivors. This is Justice Murray Sinclair, Chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The residential school experience is clearly one of the darkest, most troubling chapters in our collective history. In the period from Confederation until the decision to close residential schools was taken in this country in 1969, Canada clearly participated in a period of cultural genocide. We heard of the effects of over 100 years of mistreatment of more than 150,000 First Nations, Inuit, and Métis children placed in these schools. Removed from their families and home communities, seven generations of Aboriginal children were denied their identity. We heard how, separated from their language, their culture, their spiritual traditions, and their collective history, children became unable to answer questions as simple as, where do I come from, where am I going, why am I here, and who am I? Justice Murray Sinclair, Chair of Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, also said he suspects as many as 7,500 Indigenous children died at the residential schools, but the exact figure may never be known. The Canadian government stopped recording the deaths in 1920 after the chief medical officer at Indian Affairs suggested children in the schools were dying at an alarming rate. To talk more about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's findings, we go to Winnipeg, Manitoba, in Canada, to talk to Pamela Palmiter, Associate Professor and Chair in Indigenous Governance at Ryerson University. She's a Mi'kmaq lawyer, an Idle No More activist, and author of Beyond Blood, Rethinking Indigenous Identity and Belonging. Welcome back to Democracy Now! Can you start, Pamela, by talking, uh, by responding to the Commission's report? Were you surprised? by what they found. No, we, I, we, I wasn't surprised. I mean, this is something that Indigenous peoples have known f since the inception of residential schools. The federal government wasn't surprised, the RCMP or churches. Everybody in a position of power has long known about the crimes and abuses that happened at residential schools. Um, we're quite thankful for the bravery of the survivors to come forward and make sure that it was documented. This is a critical piece, and the truth 
Truth and Reconciliation Commission did an incredible job in the face of many barriers put forward by the federal government to make sure that their stories were heard and that as much documented evidence uh, was contained in the report. And I think that's incredibly important for Canadians because we know what happened to us, but Canadians don't know what happened and they don't understand the culpability of the federal government and churches in this regard. And, what, and the issue of uh, the conclusion of cultural genocide, do you have any concerns or qualms about that specifically? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the Truth and Reconciliation Commission went about as far as they felt comfortable in, in naming it cultural genocide, um, but I... It's, it's just genocide through and through. If you look at the UN definition on genocide, it meets every single one of those factors, and there's nothing cultural about it. They weren't killing us because of our culture. They were killing us because we were Indians, and we stood in the way of accessing all of the lands and resources and settlement in this country. Think about it. All of the overrepresentation in this country in prisons, uh, you know, some prisons have as high as 60% indigenous peoples. That's not not because of our culture, it's because we're Indians and we have rights and Aboriginal rights that still stand in the way of unfettered resource development. Why are our kids in overrepresented in child and family services to the tune of 30 to 40,000 in Canada? Here in Manitoba, 90% of all kids in care are Indigenous. It's not because of their culture, it's because of who they are as Indians and that we're the Indigenous peoples here and we have rights to protect this territory and we're essentially the last stand against complete unfettered uh, development here in this country. And so if you look at it across the board, while they may have uh, characterized it in terms of you know assimilating culture, you wouldn't have a death rate of upwards of 40% in some of of those schools if it was just about culture. It would have been more aggressive uh, education tactics both in those schools and in the communities. If you have a death rate that's higher than those who enlisted in World War II, this wasn't about culture. I want to turn to survivor testimony recorded by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada. This is William Nelson describing his experience being sent to a residential school. We arrived to the dorm in the middle of the night. The supervisor for the junior boys showed me my bed. The rows of beds where, where other boys were asleep. I thought they were asleep. But once the supervisor closed the door, all the heads popped up. And the boys all stood around to look at the new kid. That was me. Around the second night or so, the supervisor opened the dorm door, which he caught me sitting up in bed. He says, we have rules here. If you're caught sitting up in bed, you should be sleeping. Because I was sitting up, I had to be punished. The punishment was getting strapped and whipped with a belt. I believe it was about seven times that I was whipped in the back.
That's William Nelson, another survivor of the residential schools named Marianne Sam of Vancouver Island, also spoke at the Truth and Reconciliation Sharing Circle. From my experience of why I was at the residential school, my sisters and I were led to believe that our mother was killed in a car accident. But that was not true. She was in the accident, but the ministry and families had taken us. Hid me and my sisters for years. When my mom was old enough to care for us again, she searched and searched for us. We were once again reunited. She returned us home. She was a single parent. And again, it was her, her struggle that provided us strength to love and respect others. It was then when we returned home that we were brought to the day school again with priests and nuns. So we thought this is the way of life. But we enjoyed where we were back with our community, family and children that we knew. But, but the experience here was similar or not again to use our language not to use our cultural ways, as that was not for who we were. In my, my community, it was our mothers who fought for our school and went back to teach our language, our culture. That's Marianne Sam of Vancouver Island speaking at the Truth and Reconciliation Sharing Circle. Uh, Professor Palmiter, she says, my sisters and I were led to believe our mother was killed in a car accident, but that wasn't true. And respond to what both William uh, and she were saying. Well, I mean, these stories are, are quite common, and, and stories even worse than this are quite common. Um, the amount of intentional lying and deception and keeping parents away from children. So it wasn't like uh, parents were just enrolling these children, they were going to school, and there were some isolated incidents of, of um, bad things happening. We're talking about whole-scale theft of children from communities, uh, in large part against the will of the parents, uh, and parents were kept away from those schools, and even children who ran away uh, were brought back, oftentimes by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, despite the allegations of what was happening in those schools. And that's, that's the real crime here, because whether or not people agree that this is genocide, it was always against the law to kidnap children, to assault them, to assault them with deadly weapons, to rape, torture them, use electric chairs on them, to deny them food and water, um, to beat them to such an extent that some died, to starve them until some died. All of these things were crimes then, just as it is now. And nobody was prosecuted, despite the fact that the RCMP knew, the federal government knew, and the churches knew exactly what was happening. And I think really illustrative of that are the government's own documents. You had doctors coming to the federal government saying you have extremely high death rates in these schools and the federal government's response was well that doesn't justify a change in our policy because the overall objective is quote unquote the final solution and we've heard those words before so we know exactly what the intention was and I know there was a focus on culture and that people were uh, abused and 
beaten for speaking their language and culture, and they were clearly denied their identity. But for many of these children, upwards of 40%, they were denied their right to live. And that goes far beyond culture. Think about at the same time uh, the forced sterilizations that were happening against Indigenous women and little girls all across the country. Sterilization has nothing to do with one's culture, but in essence, uh, the one's right to continue on in their cultural group or, or nation-based group. The objective was to get rid of Indians in whatever way possible. Culture was one aspect of it, but also denying them the right to live or to procreate was was uh, an essential part of this. And, and I think what's really important for people around the world to understand is that Residential schools didn't stand in isolation. It was in addition to the forced sterilizations, the scalping bounties, um, all of the overrepresenting our people in prison, um, stealing them and putting them in child and family services, the thousands of murdered and missing Indigenous women in this country that go unresolved and, and no steps taken to, to prevent these actions, and that this is ongoing. It's, it would be a terrible mistake to historicize this and say, well, this happened a long time ago. We now know what happened. Let's apologize and move on. It is ongoing. When they closed residential schools, their very next policy was known as the 60s scoop, where they actually took more children from First Nations than during the residential school period, which is why we have now... 30 to 40 percent of our children in care. They're still taking our children. They're still trying to raise them in non-indigenous families. And many of these children end up as murdered and missing indigenous women, or they end up in the prison system. And that's this legacy of the residential schools is ongoing. It's very much in the present. You can track the survivors of residential schools to kids in care, to people in prison, to those who are homeless, um, to those who have poor health. All of these things are very much in the present. So we have to take action now to address the ongoing uh, problems that were started by the residential school and have never stopped and, and continue to this day in just different terminology and in different policies. And, and Pamela Palmer, I wanted to ask about the, uh, the, the role of the churches in this. It wasn't just the government. Uh, mm. Which churches, what specifically did they do, and what has been their admission of, their own admission of their culpability uh, in this cultural genocide or this general genocide, as you say? Well, I think it's varied. So um, all of the churches that were here uh, were involved in this. It looks like the majority of these schools were run by the Catholic Church. Uh, I understand that there, at a local level there has been difficulty in obtaining records. Often churches didn't make note of the children who died in those schools. Um, so we don't even have a complete record of those how many that did die? We know for sure it's at least six to seven thousand, but it could be even higher. Uh, many churches had unmarked graves, uh, and and you're we're in a situation now where uh, resident many residential school survivors and First Nations are demanding that churches come forward and give us all of their documentation uh, at every level, no matter where the documents have been kept about who knew what and when, um, who was involved, and and primarily to bring closure for many of these families. 
uh, to know where their where their child last spent their days, where their remains could possibly be, and all of that information has not been uh, forthcoming from the churches, uh, especially at an administrative or or national or international level. At the local level, however, you do see local churches uh, trying to take steps to make amends, to try to. Um, have a better relationship with indigenous peoples and and trying to work together to support different initiatives on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So we have uh, Cree people who are walking across the country for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, events and the, their walk was supported by some of the churches and things like that. But I think at an institutional level, the churches have a lot more work to do and they need to make some very specific and targeted apologies and make amends because as we know apology means nothing unless you're going to try to make amends to right the wrongs that happened in the past and so they have a clear responsibility in addition to the federal government to support things like indigenous languages and cultures and education and and trying to find a way to both identify these children and return them to their families and communities that's incredibly important last year the royal canadian mounted police revealed at least 1181 native women Women and girls were killed or went missing between 1980 and 2012. The new Truth and Reconciliation Commission report made a link between the residential schools with the missing and murdered women. The report states, quote, the available information suggests a devastating link between the large numbers of murdered and missing Aboriginal women and the many harmful background factors in their lives. The complex interplay of factors, many of which are part of the legacy of residential schools, needs to be examined as does the lack of success of police forces in solving these crimes against Aboriginal women, unquote. Uh, Palma Lepometer, can you talk about what is being planned now? I mean, that's a government commission. What is the follow-up at this point? Well, there is no follow-up, and probably one of the most insulting, shameful things that happened yesterday was when the Truth and Reconciliation Commissioner, Justice Murray Sinclair, got up and said there's a clear link between what happened in residential schools and the vulnerability of our Indigenous women and girls that go murdered and missing, and that he recommended and supported all of the calls for a national inquiry. Everyone stood up, gave him a standing ovation, except the Minister of Indian Affairs. And that's, that's, that's extremely significant. If the Minister of Indian Affairs can't be supportive of finding justice for indigenous women and girls who go murdered and missing at an extremely alarming rate. Here in Manitoba, it's 50%. They only make up 4% of the population, but 50% of all indigenous women and uh, of all women and girls that go murdered or missing are indigenous. And so we have some significant issues across the country. It, again, it's not just about our culture. Our very lives are at stake. And so the Minister of Indian Affairs didn't clap, he didn't give a standing ovation, and this is in line with what the Prime Minister has said. He's said time and time again an inquiry into why uh, Indigenous women go murdered and missing is not high on our radar. He doesn't consider it to be an issue, and, and he's really out of touch with all of the research, there's been at least 50 reports with over 700 recommendations on how to deal with this, and the United Nations, various human rights bodies, including CEDAW, have come out with reports which have 
researched and studied this and said, this is a problem. The police are not taking action. There's lots of socioeconomic conditions of poverty um, that make our Indigenous women and girls vulnerable, some stemming from residential schools, some stemming from Canada's very purposeful, targeted, racist and discriminatory laws and policies, and that a national inquiry is recommended to get at the root of it so that we can come up with uh, solutions to prevent it from happening to begin with. It's no good uh, to have a police force who's now willing to take action to investigate murders. We want to stop those from happening uh, in the beginning. And I think it, it's critical that this Truth and Reconciliation Report tied all of these things together. That residential schools didn't just happen as, as a moment in history. It's ongoing legacy. Well, and that's also in line with some of the other recommendations around the overrepresentation of our people in prisons. Uh, Justice Murray Sinclair recommended that action be taken right away to look at all of the criminalization data and take action to stop this from happening. The same with child and family services. The same with all of the socioeconomic problems that make our people vulnerable to begin with. Most Americans know today as Columbus Day, at least in 47 states, although Hawaii has renamed it Discoverer's Day after the original Polynesians who populated that island thousands of years ago. South Dakota calls it Native American Day, and Alaska just ignores it, like pretty much everything else. But what we're really celebrating today is Happy Taino Genocide Day. The day when Christopher Columbus began to wipe out an entire indigenous population in a way that would even make Pol Pot blush. In 1492, Columbus was on a manic hunt for gold when he set sail and eventually landed on a small island off the coast of North and South America, an island today known as Hispaniola, which was split between the nations of Haiti and the Dominican Republic. And as he wrote in a letter to the King and Queen of Spain, Gold is most excellent. Gold constitutes treasure. And he who has it does all he wants in the world and can even lift souls up to paradise. But when he landed in what he called the new world, there wasn't much gold. But he did find something he thought was just as good as gold. People who, in Columbus's mind, would make great slaves. So he wrote to the Spanish monarch, quote, they are well built with good bodies and handsome features. They do not bear arms and do not know them. For I showed them a sword. They took it by the edge and cut themselves out of ignorance. They have no iron. Their spears are made of cane. They would make fine servants. With 50 men, we could subjugate them all and make them do whatever we want. And here there are so many of these slaves, although they are living things, they are as good as gold. End of quote from Christopher Columbus. What Columbus did to the island and the tragedy he brought to the native population there has been largely erased by time and replaced by a glorified story of a bold explorer who changed the planet. In reality, though, as a result of what we've learned from writings by Christopher Columbus's own men, he raped, pillaged, enslaved, and slaughtered people just to get rich. 
Not exactly the type of guy worthy of a Main Street parade. One of Columbus's crewmen, Miguel Cueno, described the scene when Columbus arrived in Hispaniola for the second time. And thousands of Tainos, or what were referred to as Indians, came out to greet the ships. Cueno writes, When our caravels, that's the, the, the ships, were to leave for Spain, we gathered 1,600 male and female persons of those Indians. For those who remained, that is for the Spaniards who were staying on the island, we let it be known to the Spaniards in the vicinity that anyone who wanted to take some of them, that is the slaves, could do so to the amount desired, which was done. Cueno went on to write that he took his own sex slave, a beautiful teenage girl who, in his own words, quote, resisted with all her strength, end quote, leaving him no other choice but to, quote, thrash her mercilessly and rape her, end quote. And when Columbus's men did good work, Columbus routinely presented them with their very own sex slaves. But that was just the beginning. Columbus eventually started up a global child sex slave trade, exporting young Indians all around the world. As he bragged to a friend in a letter written in 1500, a hundred Castellanos, that's a Spanish coin, are as easily obtained for a woman as for a farm. And it is very general, and there are plenty of dealers who go about looking for girls. Those from nine to ten year olds are, years old are now in demand. End quote from Christopher Columbus. Eventually, under Columbus's orders, life for the Taino on their homeland of Hispani- Hispaniola got so bad that they resorted to mass suicide. As the Spanish missionary Pedro Cordoba noted in 1517, 25 years after Columbus arrived, quote, As a result of the sufferings and hard labor they endured, the Indians choose and have chosen suicide. Occasionally, a hundred have committed mass suicide. The women, exhausted by labor, have shunned conception and childbirth. Many, when pregnant, have taken something to abort and have aborted. Others, after delivery, have killed their children with their own hands so as not to leave them in such oppressive slavery. End quote. By the time Cordoba wrote those words, the indigenous population on Hispaniola had plummeted from roughly 3 million people before Columbus arrived to only 12,000 people 25 years later. A few decades after that, not one was left on the island. An entire culture and people completely wiped off the map and largely forgotten, thanks to Christopher Columbus. Happy Taino Genocide Day. I, I I propose we rename Columbus Day. Taino Genocide Day or Native American Genocide Day. Take your pick. This program is sponsored by Casper, and it seems only fitting that an episode about Columbus Day would also come with a mattress commercial. Uh, Good news, though, Casper didn't have a Columbus Day sale, so they totally avoided the taint of colonization and genocide. So... Gold star for them. Uh, That's not all that's good about them, though. They've been making a name for themselves with their obsessively engineered mattress using latex and memory foam, which makes for the right blend of sink and bounce. They've also changed the game by selling direct to buyers, which results in a great mattress at a shockingly fair price. They start at only $500 for a twin size and go up from there, but even the king size is only $950. Plus, by going to casper.com slash best and using the offer code best at checkout, 
they'll knock off an additional $50. Now, it may sound odd to order a mattress off the internet, but it's actually much better because Casper has a risk-free trial and return policy, so you can actually try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days instead of for five minutes in a showroom, and they deliver it to you for free, and the returns are painless in the unlikely scenario that you're not happy with it. Plus, they give you a 10-year warranty to boot. So if you're in the market for a mattress, then check out their website for details on the design and construction of Casper mattresses. And remember to go to casper.com slash best and use the offer code best at checkout for $50 off your order and to support this show at the same time. We white people have run into the problem that we're almost out of things to steal from them. But Senators John McCain and Jeff Flake recently stood up to the challenge. You see, the Apache Indians have a very sacred land in Oak Flat, Arizona. Our government recently gave it to the Resolution Mining Company, which is owned by the foreign company Rio Tinto. You see, our lawmakers have basically two ways of stealing land from people. One is to go, oh my god, the people on that land have weapons of mass destruction. We have to invade or else they'll kill us all. Everybody duck and cover, tuck your d- between your legs and ride, ride. That worked in Iraq. But they couldn't do that with Oak Flat, Arizona, because they would look crazy going, oh my god, they've got a bow and arrow of mass destruction it's the size of the Empire State Building and they spent the last month pulling back the arrow so instead John McCain and and Jeff Flake snuck this land theft into the National Defense Authorization Act and even the mining company itself admits the operation will turn Oak Flat into a meteor crater here's Senator Flake defending this insanity This was a bill sponsored by my colleague uh, John McCain, and I was happy to join him to advance the measure. It also shares bipartisan support in the House. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Am I supposed to be impressed with bipartisan support? I don't care if you and the other corporate snot bags agree with each other. But when you guys agree, that means we're really It's like being excited that Freddy Krueger and Chucky got together in a bipartisan agreement to dismember you. Preserve more than 5,300 acres of conservation lands. Yeah, it's not preserving the sacred land, of course. That's screwed. But that empty field behind the big lots where the crack addicts sleep, we're keeping that real nice. It uh, will provide protections for Native Americans to continue traditional gatherings and ceremonies after the land exchange has been completed, so long as it remains safe to do so. Remains safe to do so. Yeah, you know all those open pit mining operations where it's safe to hold sacred ceremonies? Don't worry, Apache. Once we cut out a two-mile crater, you can dance your pants off. I was encouraged to learn that uh, the company has entered into a contract with the Gila River Indian community to use a portion of the tribe's water supplies to meet the long-term needs of the mine. Hey, we're destroying your sacred grounds, but good news, we're going to use your water to do it. We're mother Teresa. This is further evidence of how the measure, even before it's passed, can help foster economic opportunities for Indian and non-Indian communities. 
Have you ever heard of societal force, you condescending ass clown? Just because people are so desperate, they're willing to sell you the water used to decimate their heritage. That doesn't make it a scene from Happy Days. You, you put people in dire straits and they'll do anything. Hey, this, this starving kid will work for two bucks a day. I'm such a good person. I gave him a job chopping up diseased zombie carcasses down by the docks. <laughs> but of course, it doesn't matter as long as you create jobs. There are 500 people currently employed by Resolution on the Mind. Albo Guzman, he's a local superior trading contractor. He has several local employees working for him on this project. That's a person, not a robot. Jeb Domlin. Yeah, you know you've created a hell of a lot of jobs when you have time to name the workers individually. <laughs> sure, we're planning the destruction of the Apache Nation, but it'll give a job to Carl. He's right there. Yeah, he's, he's a half an idiot, but he needs the job. <laughs> But here's the kicker. Contributions to McCain from the mining industry doubled leading up to this theft. Contributions to Jeff Flake went from $2,500 in 2010 to $183,000 in 2014. And Mr. Flake, before he made it to Congress, was a paid lobbyist for, drumroll please, Rio Tinto. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the definition of corruption. But it's not too late. It's not too late. Hundreds, hundreds of Apache and their supporters are camping out at Oak Flat to, pro to protest Rio Tinto digging a giant butthole into their sacred territory. Call your representative and tell them to support overturning this. to miss this corner of the Navajo Nation, just 100 miles west of Albuquerque. Most things pass the reservation right by, including progress. Many of the roads here are unpaved. Electricity is spotty. Unemployment in the area hovers near 70%. But perhaps most shocking of all, an estimated 40% of the people who live here don't have access running water. And the sink, what does the sink do? We don't use the sink because there's no running water. It's just there. Yeah. Loretta Smith and her husband share this small mobile home with their disabled granddaughter, Brianna. Seven? That's how old? With no indoor plumbing, what little water the family has inside is carried in, bucket by bucket, stored in plastic barrels outside. Do you feel sort of forgotten out here? Yes. For sure, yeah. The area's main source of drinking water is miles away, in the parking lot of the St. Bonaventure Indian Mission in the town of Thiru, New Mexico. Okay. Getting water here can mean a 100-mile round trip for some families. And the mission's office manager, Cindy Howe, says many don't even have access to a car. 
What happens when they run out of water? If they don't have any water, it's just they don't have any water. And I just, sometimes I get so frustrated. Why is it? Why can't people get water? And that's where Darlene Arviso comes in. They call her the water lady. Every day, Darlene loads up her big yellow tanker truck and takes to the roads to deliver something most of us take for granted. When I see her coming, I get, yes, yes, water. <laughs> Darlene is Navajo, born and raised right here on the reservation. Pretty much know everybody, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's used to carrying precious cargo. She's been driving the school bus on the reservation for years. But her water route is a job that she considers almost sacred. I'm proud of what I'm doing for my people, and I love my job. So. Do you? Yes, I do. What do you love about it so much? Like, I go out every day to meet different families, yeah. There are 250 homes on her route, and she can only get to each family once a month. And sometimes not even then, if the mud gets too thick. Which is why when she does make it, it's often treated like a celebration. (laughs) Nina Garcia has never had a day with running water in her life. Unlike the rest of us who use about 100 gallons of water a day, Nina has been getting by on only about 7 gallons. That's a hard truth that Darlene has a hard time watching. Sometimes I wish I could do more. How do they make it last so long? Well, they just have to stretch out their water. and yeah. I say this, you know, as having been raised Catholic with full knowledge of what I'm saying. <laughs> Darlene Arviso is a living saint. The fact that this man, George McGraw, is on this reservation at all is a testament to just how dire the Navajo situation is. Do you see yourself? He runs a nonprofit called Dig Deep. He normally works in developing countries, digging wells in places like South Sudan, Kashmir, and Cameroon. But now, the problem is right in his backyard. I really had no concept that this kind of material poverty existed in the U.S. But it does. The question is, why? It should be regarded as a national embarrassment. We took that question to Dan McCool, a political science professor at the University of Utah, who studied Indian water rights for the last 40 years. How is this possible in this day and age that Americans don't have running water? American Indians in Arizona and New Mexico were not allowed to vote until 1948. They did not have a voice. They weren't in line politically when the money, the funding, the projects, and the water was being allocated. So the only source of water left for the Navajo is groundwater, lying deep beneath the hard rock of the Continental Divide. We took this project to hydrogeologists, to engineers, to construction specialists all over the country, even here in the Southwest. And everyone said, well, this is one of the most challenging projects we've ever seen. Even if they can find water, it might not be drinkable. You'd probably start to hit water here at about 600 feet, but the water you'd get out would be laced with uranium. That's from years of mining on the reservation during World War II. Older water wells dot the landscape. Sarah Begay, who's lived on the reservation all her life, took us to this one. It's still pumping water, but few dare drink from it anymore. 
for years. I mean, maybe a good 20, 30 years. It was fine. It was fine. And then what happened? Uh, people started getting sick. So dig deep must dig deeper. And the clock is ticking. Running out of water by the middle of the month is, is a painful experience. And most of them do. Yeah, most of them still do. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Lindsay Johnson makes sure she doesn't run out. She has a system to conserve every drop Darlene delivers. What would you do without her? I don't know. <laughs> Aside from her morning coffee mug, she uses only paper plates and cups so she doesn't have to wash dishes. Like her fellow Navajos, Lindsay shares her home with as many as eight other people. When it comes to washing hair, two, maybe three of them will all use the same water. Lindsay's 16-year-old granddaughter, Yvonne, says almost everyone here finds ways to cope without running water, but few want to talk about it. People don't share their stories. Yeah. I don't either. You don't tell them? No. Because why? It's like, it's kind of embarrassing. It's just hard. So who's to blame for this? The counties and the states say, oh, it's the federal responsibility, and the feds say, well, we're broke, it's the state's and the county's responsibility. It's a lot of finger pointing. Oh, yes, yeah, a lot of passing the buck. And so the Navajo wait. Has Darlene kept you updated on everything going on with the well, the new yeah. work? Yeah. George's Dig Deep Well is coming along but it will cost close to $500,000 to complete. And all of it is funded by donations. But even if the well gets up and pumping, Darlene still won't be out of a job. A new well doesn't mean homes will suddenly have new plumbing. What it means is clean water will be more readily accessible. A first step. The next will be building gravity-fed storage tanks like these that could be hooked up to faucets inside. But that's several years and probably countless fundraisers away. Things are not simple here. But every time we have even the smallest success in this project, those little moments are yeah. so tremendously impactful for me. I think I'm really starting to live for this project. It's, it's, it's ours. Do you think you'll ever see a day where everyone here has water? I just hope so. <laughs> I just pray and that they'll have running water, yeah. A simple wish the Navajo people hope won't just be a drop in an already empty bucket. Monday, October 12th is Columbus Day, which we've celebrated in various parts of this country since the 18th century, even before it became a federal holiday back in 1937. And that's probably long enough. Because when you find out the actual facts of what Christopher Columbus did when he got to America, you're going to see that it's one of the darkest chapters in America's history. Now, I've got a lot of these facts, Cenk, so feel mm -hmm. free to just cut me off when you want to interject. Mm -hmm. uh, but first of all, let's start with something light. 
Columbus initiated the transatlantic slave trade in early February 1494, first sending several dozen enslaved Tainos, these are the native people of the island that he landed on, to Spain. Columbus described those he enslaved as well-made and of good intelligence. He ordered 1,600 of them rounded up and had 550 of the best males and females, according to one witness, Michel de Cuneo, chained and sent as slaves to Spain. Of the rest who were left, that person writes, the announcement went around that whoever wanted them could take as many as he pleased, and this was done. And understand that significant numbers of even those early slave deliveries ended up dying en route. Okay, so let me uh, come in there with a couple amazing things here. First of all, he, Columbus also described the, the natives that he uh, ran into when he first discovered uh, this land. If he discovered it, how come they were already there? Uh, anyway, he said they were, quote, so full of love and without greed. And you would think, like, oh, that's yep. great. That's going to lead to good relations. He's like, no, idiots, he thought. They're so full of love without greed. It makes it super easy to enslave them, beat them, murder them, chop their hands off. Christopher Columbus, the original ISIS, we're going to get to that in a second. Yeah. Okay? And so he looked at their uh, love and compassion as a weakness that he could exploit. Mm -hmm. This is the man we celebrate, right? And he says, you take the slaves and do what we want with them. Here's what they did with them, according to the journals at the time. So this is history, and it's not somebody else said it about them. They said it themselves, yeah. right? Most of the quotes you're going to see are taken from his personal journals. In the journals of Columbus and his men, they bragged about how they would break the native women, and that they would break their will to resist after rape, after rape, after rape. And then eventually they can get the women to do whatever they wanted because they had raped them so much. Yeah. Now, this is the man we celebrate, yeah. right? So now, look, when I was a kid, I was told Columbus discovered America. I knew that he hadn't discovered it because there were people there. Even as a kid, you could figure that out. But I got it. He discovered it from a European perspective. And at least, hey, the Europeans came here, we set up America, and we celebrated it, and I celebrated it. But when I grew up, I put childish things aside. Okay. So now you want to take the blue pill, and you want to go back to thinking Christopher Columbus is a lovely guy. Understand that you're making an active choice to deny facts, history and say, I'd like to be ignorant. That's yeah. what I would like to do, right? That's a choice you're making, okay? But now that I know the facts, well, obviously I changed my mind on Christopher Columbus because no one ever told me what the real facts were. You find out the real facts and you go, I, you would have to be a monster to want to celebrate yeah. this guy. Yeah, they, they leave it out of the elementary school textbooks. But yeah, uh, so we have more barbarity, but the fundamental facts, as you pointed out, he did not discover America. First of all, other Europeans had already been to America at that point, and as you point out, well over 100 million native people had already been living there. They had discovered it first, actually. Uh, they did not think that the world uh, was flat at that point. They had not thought that for over a thousand years, so he was not brave in being willing to go over the edge of the world. Um, and he did not go on a mission of exploration at all. It was a commercial enterprise and a religious enterprise to find gold and to find slaves and to convert them where possible. Now, the initial slave that we talked about proved to be unprofitable, but he later wrote, let us in the name of the Holy Trinity go on sending all the slaves that can be sold. So there you get both the religious and the commercial uh, considerations in one sentence. Uh, when the slavery did not pay off, he turned to a tribute system, forcing every Taino of 14 or older to fill a hawk's bell with gold every three months. If successful, they were safe for another three months. If not, Columbus ordered that they be punished by having their hands chopped off or they were chased down by attack dogs. As the Spanish priest Bartolomeu de la Casas wrote, this tribute system was impossible and intolerable. They not only had their hands cut off, by the way, but they were forced to wear them around their neck on thongs. Uh, a little bit barbaric there. Okay, now imagine if ISIS had cut off hands, which they do, right, from time to time. So does Saudi Arabia, by the way, one of our top allies. 
And then they made the kids, 15, 14, 15, 16-year-old kids, wear the hands around their neck. And then they said, well, I'm only chopping it off because you didn't give me enough money, enough gold, enough bribes, right? Yeah. And then I, I'm, and then they raped the women. They do this to the kids, to the, all the adults. And then they sick dogs on them, rip their by their flesh from their body, as as we all watch. Now we would rightfully call them monsters, the the worst of the worst, right? Now when Columbus does the same exact thing, we name a national holiday after him. Yeah. Again, if you didn't know, I didn't know either, right? It's okay. We're not a bad person. You, we were all told, hey, Columbus, hey, it was wonderful. Italian comes here, discovers America, Explorer, brave, you know, brave, all that stuff. It's okay. You didn't know, but now you know. Yeah. But now you know. You can't celebrate that guy. Yeah. Now, there's more that they have to know, unfortunately. This is another uh, section from Christopher Columbus's personal journal. He wrote, A hundred Castellanos are as easily obtained for a woman as for a farm, and it is very general, and there are plenty of dealers who go about looking for girls. Those from nine to ten are now in demand. So they had set up some sort of uh, system of pimps and sexual slavery in the New World. Uh, eventually, he went back to Europe uh, and then returned with more men after saying that he could conquer all of the natives because they had so little experience with war that he needed just 50 men and so that he could govern them. On his second trip to the New World, he brought cannons and attack dogs. If a native resisted slavery, he would cut off a nose or an ear. If slaves tried to escape, he had them burned alive. Other times, he sent attack dogs to hunt them down, and the dogs would tear off the arms and legs of the screaming natives while they were still alive. If the Spaniards ran short of meat to feed the dogs, Arawak babies were killed for dog food. Additionally, and this is one of the sources for the information, we referenced him earlier, one of Columbus's men, Bartolomeu de la Casas, was so mortified by Columbus's brutal atrocities against the native peoples that he quit working for Columbus and became a Catholic priest. In a single day, he was an eyewitness as the Spanish soldiers dismembered, beheaded, and raped 3,000 native people. Such inhumanities and barbarisms were committed in my sight as no age can parallel, he said. My eyes have seen these acts so foreign to human nature that now I tremble as I write. And the final toll for this barbarity, the slavery, the disease, the war, the killing, the torture, experts generally agree that before 1492, the population on the island of Hispaniola probably numbered above 3 million. Within 20 years of Spanish arrival, it was reduced to only 60,000. Within 50 years, not a single original native inhabitant could be found. Wow. Millions were killed as a result of the exploration, the discovery. Wow. And that's on one island, by the way. This was then spread throughout the region. If that's not terrorism, what in the world is, right? I mean, that terrorism is so thorough. Is after all the rapes and the beheadings and setting people on fire, they kill first, at first nearly everyone, and then eventually everyone. They kill everyone they see, okay? It's one thing to be ignorant, and that's actually... Something that plagues us all. We're all ignorant of different things, you know. I'm, I don't know particle physics, right? But uh, and, and there's a lot you don't know, and I don't know. That's okay. That's okay. If you're on a quest to learn, that's fantastic. That's exactly right, right? We're all on a quest to learn. But once you know, then it's an easy decision. If after knowing this, and you know that the contemporaries wrote this, this is not some interpretation later. Mm -hmm. They wrote this in their journals, right? After you know it, and you still Want to say that this is a good man because I don't care because he was white or he was Italian or he did it for the, he's the founder of our country. I don't care. I don't care. If you don't care about this, you're really a terrible, terrible person. Yeah. And you still want to celebrate this guy.
It would be like celebrating the leader of ISIS. Yeah. It really would. I mean, this is exactly what ISIS does, and he did it at a level that ISIS couldn't even imagine. Yeah. from Cleveland. It's been a while since I called in. I was listening to the episode on Islamophobia, and I was listening to the Protect Your Neighbor campaign. And you mentioned how people like Bill Maher make people sound like they're entrenched. And I have to tell you, I'm kind of glad you brought him up. I like so much of what Bill Maher says and stands for, and then he pulls out this Islamophobia, which infuriates me that he is so wrong on this one thing and so and so right on so many others. And I'd like to point out that I love when he has people on his show who want to challenge him. He kind of blows them off or just seems to get bullheaded like he makes one of the Republicans for doing. And I would just love although this will never happen I would love to see Bill Barr sit down and try to have that same conversation with someone like Noam Chomsky. And, uh, I, I, and my point there is Bill Barr is made up to be too much by too many people. It's very easy for him to defend his stances against a lot of intelligent people, but not a true scholar like Chomsky. And I only wish that the showdown would actually happen just so that Bill Barr would actually have to realize, for as liberal as he wants to believe he is, he really does toe a sick bigotry that's propagated mostly by conservatives. As much as he claims to hate conservatives, that is one trait of theirs. He does just as well as them, if not better, by peddling himself as a liberal promoting it. Anyway, Jay, I love the show. Keep up the great work. This is Katie from Vessel Left Social Media and Activism. And though this will sound pessimistic to start, I promise that this is indeed a belated follow-up happiness call. I was sort of waiting to see if anyone else would bring it up, and since they haven't, I will um, I will happily do it. I need to give voice to those who cringed when they heard the happiness conversation shift to the concept that it could always be worse. So those of us in poverty should consider losing our loincloth or health. I could spend five minutes alone on the idea that the guy with just a loincloth has his health, but I don't have time. Jay would cut even me off on that tangent. This is a mental health check, a phrase I don't use lightly. There's a reason mental illness and poverty go hand in hand. They are their own feedback loop. For anyone who heard the stoic concept of negative visualization and felt socked in the stomach, I'm here for you. Now, no philosophy is for anyone, and any philosophy could turn out to help you. But I need to make sure that those whose stomachs tighten like mine did have voice, because you probably don't have time to call. If you heard that and wished that it could be you, and you beat yourself up because the idea of considering harsher circumstances sent you into a panic attack or was so terrifying you felt like you failed at yet another thing, you weren't alone, so please let yourself off the hook. I have to work really fucking hard not to negatively visualize. 
every time I see a homeless person on the street, and in San Diego, that's every time I leave the house. I have to shut down the recognition of how fucking close I am to being right there with them. That 25 years of working 80, 90, 100 hours a week at two, three, four jobs have gotten me a donated air mattress to use to sleep on a donated floor in a room where I get up every day and work at a donated desk sitting on a donated chair as I try futilely to put away enough money to file bankruptcy so I can start from scratch. Except for those student loans I'm never going to get rid of and the medical debt that seems to find me even when I've always paid out of pocket for health insurance and always tried to go to the doctor. When I so much as bring any of this up, even just a tiny portion of the massive weight I carry, as I did in the lead in just now, and conclude that maybe there should be more, that maybe I should get an occasional Sunday or someday off, I legitimately have had six or seven vacation days total in my entire adult life, and I'm 36. That maybe my health would improve, that maybe my relationships would be stronger if I spent time on them. People pounce. It doesn't matter that there are 49 million of me, that 11 to 15% of our population are hungry or staring down being hungry in the next week. We get told that we should be fucking grateful. How dare we? We live in XYZ, we could live in XYZ place and it could totally be worse. So shut up and be glad you're able to work just to survive and that you never get to feel actually alive. If you don't believe me or think that I'm not as positive as I claimed at the start of a message where I sound exhausted and hopeless, simply describing a small fraction of the adversity I stare down every day, go read the comments of my Rolling Stone article talking about having my SNAP support cut to $16 because I scraped together $1,500 in income one month. If you do believe me, don't read them. It's awful. So yes, please, happiness in any circumstance, if you can make it happen, but let yourself off the hook. You are allowed bad days, bad years, anger, sadness, frustration, all of that. If you feel those things, it's not because you have failed to employ a philosophy or can't just get over it. Our system sucks, and there are those of us for whom no matter what we try to do, employ or visualize, we're still just straight up screwed. And it's not because we failed, it's because our system failed. And that's why I work on this show. I know there's a better way, and I'm here to demand it. That's what I'm choosing to do instead of taking the time to imagine the terrifying things my brain suggests on a regular basis that I have to hold at bay to keep from coming apart at the seams. I'm here to fucking fight. Fighting makes me happy because it keeps me from giving up. Well, maybe not happy all the time, but focused, purposeful, calm, and alive. Take a temporary page from the body positive movement where advocates recognize that loving yourself may not be on the table initially for everyone. Maybe liking or even just being mostly okay with yourself is a fine start. If feeling okay and a little bit driven is a step up for you, then go for that. If you can't muster happiness right now or it seems like a pipe dream, join me in aiming for alive and pretty okay while we fight with Jay to make this a place where achieving happiness doesn't take energy we have to spend on the capitalism hamster wheel avoiding disaster. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can either record a message on the voice memo app of your phone and email it to me, j at bestoftheleft.com, or leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. So today... Uh, Katie got me thinking, the message we just heard from her. And, you know, talking about personal happiness on a political podcast uh, can be a delicate matter because we are used to talking about group happiness. But personal happiness can get a little, you know, a little too personal sometimes. Happiness is what politics is really all about, you know. It's the process through which we create policies that affect groups of people and 
you know, unless politicians are sadists or bought off by special interests, which they are, of course, uh, those policies should be created in an attempt to make members of society happier. And so anyone who listens to a show like this is very comfortable talking about policies and research and polling data and statistical analysis and, you know, all in an effort to implement policies that will, on average, make people better off and presumably happier. Uh, but ultimately, as sad as it is to say, our ability, our personal ability to influence policy is relatively small, which also makes it sort of safe to discuss, you know, uh, like whenever I get into a disagreement with someone over, you know, which exact policy is better than another, I always have this thought in the back of my head about how, frankly, neither of us are actually in charge of putting policies into place. So it's safe to have this conversation. We can talk and disagree and express opinions, even if we haven't thoroughly researched the topic. We can just, you know, kind of say what we think because there's no danger of doing any damage. The outcome of our discussion will have practically no effect on policies that will in turn actually affect other people. Now, when it comes to personal happiness, things are much different. If I talk on the show about how we can affect our own level of happiness, then we're getting into dangerous territory. You know, feeling like we might have that kind of power can be scary. Uh, like Katie mentioned, if you try to do something and fail, it can make you feel worse than if you hadn't tried. So in a way, if being relatively powerless when it comes to implementing policies can be sort of oddly comforting when talking about politics, then it stands to reason that it would be oddly discomforting to be told that we actually do have power over something like our own personal happiness. Now, not necessarily entire control, mind you, but you know, a substantial amount of control. So here we've come to what I think is a kind of paradox. Powerlessness is part of what makes politics so frustrating, but it's also kind of comforting to know that because we are so relatively powerless, that, you know, it's someone else's job and therefore we have someone else to blame and we can take out our frustration on them when things don't go right. But then the inverse is also true. When we have power to change the things that affect us, it's liberating on one hand, but also scary because having that power comes with the stress and the pressure of having to actually use it. And then, you know, when we use it, there's the possibility that we won't use it well, or, you know, we won't get the effect that we want. And so then that feels like a failure. And if the thing we're trying to affect is our own happiness and we fail, then that can just make things worse. So like I said, it's a delicate topic and I'm trying to walk that line where we can recognize two things can be true at the same time. The system is fucked up and there are a lot of people who are systematically disadvantaged. And as Katie points out, there's a subset of that disadvantaged group who suffer from mental illness, which compounds all of the problems. But it is also true that people have the capacity to influence their own mood and happiness and how they interpret the world around them. In politics, there's a lot of talk about blame. You know, who's at fault? Is it society's fault that some people are allowed to be impoverished? Or is it the fault of the impoverished people that they are that way? Is it the job of society to make policies that help make people happy? Or should everyone just be glad that they don't live in some worse place and get over it? You know, but this kind of binary is not at all what I'm talking about. Not only does that not have to be an either-or question, it doesn't have to be a question about blame at all. Here's the question I would ask. Do governments and individuals 
both have the power to influence the lives and mental states of said individuals? And the answer, which should be obvious, is yes. So in Katie's message, she was assuring people that they should let themselves off the hook if they felt bad or angry or otherwise unhappy, and she reminded us all that the system is fucked up and that that's the cause of so much suffering that people face. And that's a fine thing to clarify, but it's still coming from that binary of blame, saying that the system deserves the blame rather than the individuals. But I'm not talking about blame at all. I'm talking about power, the power to influence. When you frame it in that binary, it sounds dangerously easy to me uh, that a person could end up thinking that the only way to be happy in the future is for the system to get fixed, which is a pretty dangerous thing to depend on. You know, I mean, Katie mentioned she gets her happiness from fighting the system, which is awesome. But of course, not everyone is blessed to have the time to dedicate to that fight. And so, you know, it's a little bit of a crapshoot as well. I mean, if you're just too busy and you can listen to this podcast on the commute home and you can, you know, sign a petition online, but then you got to go make dinner for your family. Like, I get it. You, you know, you can't get all your happiness from, you know, getting into the fight. You know, so I'm not saying that the system isn't to blame for lots of misery, nor am I saying that any miserable individuals are to blame for their own lot in life. What I'm saying is that both fixing the power of the system and taking control of the power over ourselves can and would help in improving our lives. You know, recognizing that we have that kind of power, as I said, is both liberating and a little bit scary, you know? It's much more comforting to think that things are out of our control and, you know, it's someone else's job. But with that line of thinking comes disempowerment. And I doubt that anyone thinks that the feeling of disempowerment is on the path to a happier life. So while it may be discomforting to be faced with the fact that we have more power over our own happiness than we usually think we do, I, I would take a little bit of discomfort over disempowerment anytime. Now, I do have one question, though. You know, Katie's message was spurred by her concern for the particular subgroup of people with mental illnesses. And, you know, I would love to hear from anyone with expertise in the field of mental illness or disabilities of any kind and their relationship to happiness or anything else that comes to mind that you want to share. I mean, my understanding is that persistent mental illness is actually one of the few things that people really cannot adjust to, which causes a perpetual downward pressure on their ability to be happy. And so it, it's really like a totally different ballpark. You know, we can talk about happiness and, and psychology generally, and then there are people with mental illness who just do not fit that mold. So I totally get that. But like I said, I would really love to hear from anyone who actually knows what they're talking about on the subject. Uh, you know, I think disability and mental illness and, and that whole sort of realm of conversation is clearly the next frontier for me. I, I know so much less about it than I wish I did or than I should. And uh, so if this can be an entryway to that conversation, uh, I would love it. So the number again, 202-999-3991. I would love to hear from anyone who wants to chime in. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Get even more from us by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the
the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained